God's word is from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. And we're going to be reading from verse 1. There are going to be three, three readings from this chapter. And uh, we'll, we'll identify uh, the second reading when we finish the first. So we're going to read verses 1 to 6, first of all. So Ezekiel 34, and it's from verse 1. And it's all about sheep and shepherds, and about how the sheep weren't being looked after. And God was cross, and he said, well, if my shepherds are not going to look after the sheep, I myself will look after them, and I will go out and search for the lost sheep. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones. But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So that was the the picture. And then we, we move on to verse 11. Verse 11 of this chapter. And God's going to take action. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
And then finally we're going to move on to verse 23, reading 23 and 24. And here we see who the shepherd is, what person of the Godhead it's going to be. Uh, And it's a reference to Jesus Christ because he is uh, uh, God's uh, servant, David. He is the prince uh, of, uh, of God. Verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. Amen. So reads God's holy word. And in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, where we're reading about God saying, I will send a shepherd to care for my flock, uh, even my servant David. Well, David by that stage had long gone. Uh, he had died. But uh, one of the uh, descendants of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, uh, came to this earth. And at one point in his ministry, he said, I am the good shepherd. So anyone who knew Ezekiel 34 would say, Haha, he's arrived, the one whom God spoke about. Well, it took faith to do that, and not many did, but thankfully there were some. And then he told this parable about uh, the good shepherd going after the lost sheep. Well, we begin at the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Amen. So reads God's word. Before we come to the preaching, uh, a short reading from Hebrews, uh, <coughs> the book of Hebrews, towards the end of the. Uh, New Testament, chapter 1, and the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So reads God's word. These few verses are our text for today, and it draws our attention to the subject of the sermon, which is the person of Christ, the person of Christ. Now, for a couple of months and maybe more, we've been looking at the book of Galatians uh, in Lisburn at our evening services, and uh, the book of Galatians is essentially about the way of salvation, the way of salvation uh, through faith in all that Christ has done. Uh, There were people who had come into Galatia and they were saying, oh, we must do our bit uh, and we must observe uh, certain Jewish laws and rites and ceremonies. Uh, And Paul was writing to the Galatians and saying, no, no, it's Christ and Christ alone. He's the only one who saves. Well then, the book of Hebrews is is slightly different because it draws our attention not uh, so much to the work of Christ, but to the person of Christ. To the person of Christ himself. Because uh, these these, uh, believers, they were tempted to, to leave Christ to the side and go back to the Old Testament as if Christ had never come. So the writer to the Hebrews focuses the attention of his readers upon Christ, upon the person of Christ, and the exhortation is to remain faithful in following him and keeping him always before them. Well, since we're at the beginning of Hebrews this morning, uh, I want us to, to think about, first of all, the recipients of the letter. The recipients of the letter. Who was this letter written to? Who was it originally for? It's always a good exercise to know that because, uh, for example, I've mentioned Galatians. Well, Galatians was written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, and that's part of modern-day Turkey. And then you have uh, uh, Romans. Well, obviously, it was written to the church in Rome, the city of Rome, or Corinth. It was written to the city uh, that... uh, uh, is in the southern part of Greece, uh, Corinth, Thessalonica, further north in Greece, uh, the letters that were written to the, the Thessalonians that was for the city of Thessalonica and so on. Letters were written to specific people. Well, who was the book of the Hebrews written to? Well, who were the Hebrews? Well, if you, if you uh, are familiar with the book of Exodus, chapter 1 and 2, you will know that uh, the descendants of Abraham, who were in Egypt, were known as Hebrews. They were known as the Hebrew slaves. And God, in a marvellous display of his power, brought them out, all two million of them, out of Egypt. And then, after 40 years wandering in the desert, they entered into the, the land of Canaan, the promised land. So the the Hebrews is another name for the Jews. So this letter was written to Jews, but not simply any old Jew, but to Jewish Christians. 
uh, Jews who had come to trust Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, instinctively, and maybe it's just me, but we tend to think that not very many Jews believed. And I think the reason why we, we tend to think that way is because the Jews were responsible for having Jesus Christ crucified. Remember that big crowd that cried out before Pilate, Crucify him! Crucify him! And that was, was a crowd of Jews. Uh, and then as well as that, uh, when Paul was taking the gospel uh, around that Mediterranean world, it was the Jews who were creating trouble everywhere he went. They were dogging his steps and seeking to prevent him declare the good news. But that's uh, a rather uh, false picture in the sense that but there were many, many Jews who did believe. And what's the evidence? Well, remember the outcome of the, the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. That brilliant sermon he preached, we're told at the end of it, 3,000, 3,000 Jews believed. Now that was a good beginning. Uh, so uh, was that built on? Well, uh, we read that subsequently in Acts 2.47 And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Then later on in Acts, uh, there was a couple of people, Ananias and Sapphira, had to be disciplined because they lied to the church and lied to the apostles. And after the discipline, we read, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, Jewish people. And that, that continues under the preaching of the apostles. Acts 6 verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, or Acts 6 and 7, after the uh, election of deacons, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So that's Jewish priests who had been serving in the temple, they became obedient to the faith. And then Acts 12:24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then Acts 21 and verse 20, uh, At this time the leaders of the church in Jerusalem <coughs> were addressing Paul and bringing him up to date about what the work of God in Jerusalem. Now Paul had been in ships, he was travelling all around uh, that Mediterranean world in the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey so they wanted to let him know well what's happening at home and this is what they said you see brother you see brother how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed so there were thousands of Jews who had come to faith not the majority uh, but a significant number and then this letter was written uh, quite a number of years later in the first century to the Hebrews, uh, to Jewish Christians, to Jews who had come to believe. <coughs> they lived in a precise geographic location. We're not sure wh wh where it was, but we know that it was a, a precise location because the author planned to visit them along with Timothy. 
as we read it in the final greetings at the end of chapter 13. Of course, although that this book was written to Hebrew Christians almost 2,000 years ago, we've got to remember it was also written for you and for me in the 21st century. It is God's word, and so it is the living word, ever relevant and ever challenging to the people of God in every age. And so we do well uh, to pay attention to what is written in this book and in this little passage that is before us this morning. So we've thought about the recipients of the letter, now the purpose of the letter, purpose of the letter. What is it that motivated the author to put pen to paper? And by the way, we can't be certain who the human author was. At one time it was considered to be the Apostle Paul. But most evangelical scholars today believe that it wasn't Paul. Uh, but whoever it was, we believe that it was inspired. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, God is the author of Hebrews, as he is of all uh, the books in the Bible. So why did he write this book in the first place? Well, we get some clues from the contents. It appears that these Jewish Christians were in danger of drifting back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial. There was some pressure being brought to bear upon them uh, by maybe parents, maybe grandparents, maybe uncles and aunts. You see, they'd left the temple, they'd left the sacrifices, they weren't turning up uh, at the, the Passover uh, they weren't turning up at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, they weren't turning up uh, for the, uh, the other Jewish annual sacrifices. And so pressure was being brought to bear upon them to return uh, to what their ancestors had been doing for generations. Uh, Jesus and the apostles were saying, uh, or at least the apostles were saying, that all those things that were pointed who in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so they're over. They're redundant. Uh, there's no further need to offer lambs as a sacrifice upon the altar because the Lamb of God has come and he's offered up himself one sacrifice uh, for, for all time. Uh, and so uh, uh, they, were, they were being put under pressure to relinquish uh, their attachment to Christ and to go back into the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. As I put it here, they were beginning to drift back to the smells and bells of the Old Testament ceremonial and thereby losing their focus on Christ. And uh, you can imagine they were maybe meeting in a room like this and maybe it wasn't as, as decorative as this room is and, but that was, that was a pale shadow of the temple and all the ornate this uh, and still some people are attracted to a building and there's a danger in that uh, when we meet in a prayer room like this our focus is to be on Christ and that's, to what, that's what makes the worship special because Christ is here by his spirit and we're in fellowship with the one with the other in Christ who is our saviour and our lord and our redeemer well, what clues are there in, in the letter well uh, we see that uh, 
uh, in chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. Lest we drift from it. Uh, And they are to keep their focus on Christ. Chapter 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith. Or chapter 12 and verse 3, consider him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him, consider Christ. And how relevant this book then is for the times in which we live. Because churches can so easily get caught up in plans and programs and lose sight of Jesus Christ. He is the one who blazes the pathway of faith. And we are his followers. If our eyes are not focused on him, then we can be so easily distracted and lose our way. We can be so easily distracted by the many substitute messiahs that this world presents. So keeping our focus on Christ as a church and as individual Christians is absolutely essential vital for our spiritual health and well-being. The recipients of the letter, the Hebrews, the purpose of the letter, that they might keep their focus on Christ, and now the subject of the letter. And this is the the longer part of the, the sermon, because there are seven smaller points in it. Well, if the purpose of the letter was to draw the believers back to Christ, there can only be one subject, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And the author of the letter in the introduction immediately draws our attention to Christ. And maybe it would be helpful uh, just to see that as we read these verses again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, then the rest of these verses are all about the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The God we worship is a speaking God. The Old Testament scriptures are summarized in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, by dreams and visions and directly, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. But something different now has happened, verse 2, in these last days. In these last days. The last days begun at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will end when, when he returns. So we are living in the last days. So through whom God has spoken to his people in these last days. He has spoken to us by his Son. 
what we have in the Old Testament scriptures is progressive revelation. Uh, and progressive revelation is a bit like uh, our, our, our sunlight. Uh, if you were up early enough this morning, uh, there would have been a few rays of sun, maybe about five o'clock coming in, but you probably weren't watching that. Uh, a few rays of sun coming in and things in the, the kitchen or the bedroom might have been a bit shadowy. You wouldn't have been able to see very much. But it was perfect light. The light that was coming in was perfect. What you needed was more. And that's like Genesis. Genesis is perfect light. But it's not complete. We need more. And then progressively, God gave more light. And so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the light was increasing. Well then, when it comes to the New Testament, we're at noonday. There is perfect light. We have a complete and final revelation. And so we have progressive revelation. So God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us through his Son. And so that brings together God's perfect revelation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Someone has said, the Son of Revelation has reached high noon at the coming of Christ. Or with the coming of Christ, it is now shone in its full brilliance. So Jesus Christ is the revealer of the Father's will. But he's much more than that, as this introduction to the book points out. And so seven aspects of the person of Christ are identified here that we want to look at. <clears throat> and the purpose behind this is that the the author wants to show the superiority of Christ to all the sacrifices and all the feast days uh, and all the, the types and shadows of the Old Testament that had been fulfilled in Christ. The things that these people were tempted to go back to. And so he wants to show them there's no comparison between these things and Jesus Christ. So who is Christ? Well, seven things. He is the heir. And we'll be brief uh, on each of them. Whom he appointed heir of all things, we read at the beginning of verse 2. And that's what the Old Testament scriptures predicted. Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So Christ has the whole world in his hands. Christ is the governor among the nations. As a result of his work upon the cross, he has been given the nations as his inheritance. Many are in rebellion to him, but all over the world today, his loyal subjects are worshipping him and giving him to that the honour that is due to him alone. Christ the heir, and of course the wonder of the gospel is that we are joint heirs with him, and one day we will go to be with him, to reign with him, forever and ever. Christ the heir, Christ the creator, second part of verse 2, through whom also he created the world. When atheistic scientists speak of spontaneous generation of matter, they are saying something that is absolutely blasphemous. They are taking away from Christ the honour that is due to him alone, through whom he created the universe. All things were created by him and for him. 
and for his glory. And of course those who, who deny Christ uh, this great work will one day face his wrath. But the Bible tells us, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that belongs to you. That blessing, if you're a Christian, and if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Saviour. Christ the heir, Christ the creator, then Christ the revealer, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact imprint of his nature. For most of his time on earth, Christ's glory was veiled. (coughs) Christ's glory was hidden as if it were uh, covered over by a curtain. But then, uh, on one particular occasion, the veil uh, was lifted, uh, the curtain was parted, and the glory, the magnificent glory of Christ shone forth. And Peter, James, and John witnessed it in the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. When Christ returns, he will come in all his glory with all the holy angels. And we will see that magnificence for ourselves. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father. And so he reveals the Father to us in this way. And as well as that, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Shortly before Christ was crucified, the disciples uh, asked him, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. It will be enough for us. And Jesus replied, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, what is God like? Read the Bible and discover Jesus Christ. And that reveals to you exactly who God is. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Well then, fourthly, he is the sustainer. He is the sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who keeps all the planets in orbit? Who keeps planet Earth revolving on its axis at a constant speed so that we have day and night so that we have a 24 hour day so that we have spring and autumn that we have summer and winter who causes planet earth uh, to revolve around the sun in such uh, an orderly and consistent manner what prevents planet earth from burning to ash or freezing to ice (coughs) who will maintain the fertility of the earth until he comes Jesus Christ Jesus Christ who sustains all things who upholds the universe (coughs) by the word of his power there's a lot of talk about global warming but it doesn't disturb the believer because our trust, our confidence is in Jesus Christ And so this world will not wear out. This world will not destroy itself until he determines when that time is. 
He is the sustainer. <coughs> then fifthly, he is the redeemer. Verse 3. <coughs> After making purification for sins. These Jews were familiar with the many offerings in the Old Testament and that they were required for purification. These offerings were pointers to the one great offering, the offering of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice upon the cross. It was the sin offering, the sin offering that cleanses, the sin offering that purifies, the sin offering that makes holy all who put their trust in him. And so it's in this way <coughs> that Christ is the redeemer of his people. He seeks those who are lost. He saves those who are condemned. He delivers those who are in bondage. He purifies those who are polluted by sin. What a glorious redeemer he is. Later on, the writer asked the question, How shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation. He came and by his sacrifice upon the cross made purification for sins. And then how? How shall we escape? How shall you escape? There is no other way of escape. There is no other saviour. No other redeemer. No one else who made a sacrifice for sin. Apart from him. And so we must put our trust on him. Then, sixthly, he is ruler. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3. The idea of sitting at the right hand of someone <coughs> signifies a privileged position granted to a highly honoured person. In this instance, it means that Christ has entered into his reign. He's ruling now from his seat at God's right hand all things in heaven and on earth. Before he went into heaven he said something very significant to the disciples as they were gathered around him. Uh, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so he's the boss in the universe. It is Jesus Christ. You're never to forget that and I'm never to forget that. And when we're tempted to despair about what's happening in the world, remember, he's in control. Ultimately, he calls the shots. And if someone uh, that he believes should be removed, he will remove them. If someone belie he believes should be in a position of authority, well, Christ will grant it for his own glory. And for his own purposes. <clears throat> and so because he is on the throne. We are filled with hope and confidence. Petty princes. And prime ministers on earth. May tamper with his laws. And seek to cast aside all cords of moral restraint. But our king is not perturbed. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And finally, he is supreme. <clears throat> Verse 4. Having become 
as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Jews were inclined to hold angels in high esteem. And I think these Jews were tempted to place angels in a position higher than Jesus Christ. But Christ is vastly superior to angels. To illustrate this, we are told that the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the name he had inherited was the name Son. That was the designation that he was given. The only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. For as angels, they were created beings, messengers of God, sent to do his bidding. And the remainder of this chapter compares and contrasts Christ to angels, pointing out his superiority at every turn. For example, unto which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Hebrew Christians were taking their eyes off Christ. They were being seduced by various sideshows. This letter was to challenge them and to challenge us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, to consider him who is the heir, the heir of all things, who is the creator. All things were made by him and for him. He was the revealer of the Father's glory. He is the sustainer of this world in which we live. And he is the redeemer of all who put their trust in him. He is the ruler of the universe. Because all authority and all power has been given to him. And he is supreme above all things in heaven and on earth. Consider, consider him. The Lord Jesus Christ who in the words of Colossians 1.17 is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. Amen. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for progressive revelation culminated and climaxed in him who said, I am the light of the world. Whosoever followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And grant, O God, that in following Jesus Christ, we might know that light shining upon us, making clear the way that we must go, and following in the pathway of him who leads us as the Good Shepherd. So, our Father, we do thank you for your word. Bless us as we would conclude our worship in singing praise. And all to your glory. Amen.